carefully unpacked yet another plum-coloured cardigan and placed it in the drawer. Every time I've travelled on a train, I've been offered a sweet, usually a green one, by a man. It is because I'm so attractive to them, you have to be careful. I stared at the end of her nose where yet another drip was forming, and watched as she caught it in a white hanky with marjorie embroidered at the edge. Did you take it? I plucked up courage to ask, hoping as I did so it had been a sewer plume, one of the green sweets of which we were so fond. Certainly I did not. You know you must never take sweets from a strange man. This seemed to be the end of the story for the time being, and after carefully placing two pairs of brown brogues under the bed and clutching her handbag, which she carried with her at all times, Marjorie Pierce proceeded to take up her duties as our new nanny. My mother, with Dad away at the war looking for bombs, five children on her hands, and a part-time job at Douglas Fowles' bookshop in Edinburgh, had been glad of any help she could get. She had not had much luck so far particularly with Marjorie Pierce's predecessor, the famous Nanny Dawson, who was indeed a formidable creature to us children. She was a large, square woman, with black hair in a bun covered in a net, black-rimmed spectacles hiding little piggy eyes, warts in a dark forest of hair on her upper lip. She smelt strongly of Dettol and evening in Paris, and shouted at us in an army barracks way. She would serve up what you left on your plate from the meal for the next meal, and again if you dared to leave it. We all loathed her, and laughed maniacally when she spilt hot porridge down her front one morning at breakfast. Her exit from our house was dramatic, to say the least. I'd been woken one night with some shouting in the distance, and I heard my mother say, You slut! You slut! How dare you! Get out! Get out, both of you! Was I dreaming? I thought so and went back to sleep. But Nanny Dawson had gone the next day. Apparently she had several boyfriends, and my mother had discovered her in bed with one of them that night. We would never have believed it if we'd known at the time, as the thought of her with a man was impossible. I had just sat down and got my book out, when a man in a paisley sweater went by on his way to the buffet, he offered me a cup of coffee. Marjorie Pierce was sitting on the settee, staring out of the window. I was practising throwing my precious jackknife into the kitchen door. I had repeatedly asked for a jackknife and a sporran for Christmas, and my parents for some reason had weakened about the jackknife. My little brother Alan carefully tottered over to her, clutching one of his extraordinary prehistoric monsters made out of old socks and twigs and offered it to her. She placed it absently on the cushion beside her and went on staring out of the window. 
My sister Amanda was reading the twins at St. Clair's and had ignored Marjorie Pierce from the start. Arthur was teasing Ricky the dog with a scrap of material, while Chris drew ballet dancers and hummed softly. Did you take it, and did he offer you a sweet too? I asked, pausing between throws. I couldn't get it to stick in today. This was the third train story so far, and Marjorie Pierce never seemed to get her man. She refused the sweets, wouldn't talk to the men, and yet they persisted and it always seemed to happen when she boarded a train. My question brought her out of the reverie she was in. What does your mother usually give you for lunch? It must be nearly time. Arthur quickly chimed in. Oh, you know, peaches and ice cream, usual sort of thing. Things we never had except on special occasions. We all gravitated towards the kitchen, and Marjorie Pierce cast a vague eye around. That hasn't been washed up yet, she said with some distaste, and pouring what was in it down the sink, began scouring the pan with much splashing. We were munching our way stolidly through some cheese sandwiches when my mother returned from the shop with stories to regale us of who'd been in that morning. The highlight had definitely been a surprise visit from her friend Paula, who had just found out she was having another baby, the last one being a bit of a surprise. I don't think my mother had sold a book all morning, but at least it had given her a break from us. Where's the stock pan? My mother stopped suddenly and stared. Marjorie Pierce blinked and sifted into her handkerchief. If you mean the saucepan full of water by the sink, I washed it up for you. I suppose it was a natural enough mistake to make, but it was during the war. Things were scarce and my mother went puce in the face and suddenly grabbed her arms and shook her like a rat. We were appalled. She never did things like that. You stupid, stupid woman! That was the stock for the soup for tea! Marjorie Pierce sniffed into her handkerchief, kept saying she was sorry, but it had looked just like dirty washing up water, and she'd only been trying to help. During our supposed rest after lunch, her future was discussed with much gusto and several pillow fights, and I gave my imitation of Nanny Dawson. I had just reached the famous porridge scene when in walked Marjorie Pierce, equipped with brogues, and announced we were all going to the botanical gardens. got off at Perth. The man in the paisley suit followed me, she announced, as we reached the end of Warriston Crescent. I had once offered Alan a worm at this exact spot. There was a wonderful ice cream shop there called Coyers, and I could just imagine the smell of vanilla and raspberry sauce. Perhaps the new nanny could be persuaded to buy us ice creams. What did you do then, I breathed hoping to spur her on to further stories of men and trains. But at that moment, Arthur darted across the road, just missing a tram by inches, and Marjorie Pierce showed her true colours as a nanny by giving him a real talking to and bustling us along Inverleith Terrace as fast as age and feet permitted. He followed me to my door, but I would not let him in. 
He couldn't help following me. It's because I'm so attractive to men. Amanda caught my eye and he gazed at the floor very hard, convinced that Marjorie Pierce had been recently let out of a lunatic asylum and had somehow conned my mother into giving her a job. At the botanic, she paid no attention to the old man sitting on the bench with sparrows on his shoulders. He carried a little tin full of cheese and spoke to the birds all the time in a rough voice, but broke off to address us as we hurried past. Oh my, what a lovely sight there's Bonnie for you, he said. I thought he meant Chris, twirling and humming balletically amongst the leaves at the side of the path. Or possibly Alan, with his stocking dinosaur stuffed under his arm and thumb firmly in his mouth. Or even Amanda and I, who were in homemade brown siren suits with rosy cheeks. But Marjorie Pierce had no doubt as to whom he was speaking. Pulling her navy gabardine mac firmly to her, she strode on. Just ignore him. It's my fault. I can't help being attractive to them. There were two high spots of colour on her cheeks. The blue eyes sparkled. Cora's ice cream parlour receded into the distance. If every male we passed on the walk was a possible adventure for Marjorie Piers, she was certainly not going to be interested in a cornet with raspberry sauce. But even she got caught up with what was going on at the pond. Two of the keepers had been scooping mud into a punt, and one of them got his wellington stuck in the mud, and when the other one went in to help him, he fell in. There was quite a crowd of mothers and children on the bank, all giving advice and getting in the way, and by the time some sort of normality had returned, Alan had disappeared. Marjorie Pierce banished all thought of male attraction out of her mind as she searched frantically for him. Does he usually do this? Is it a game? Is there somewhere he hides, she panted, as we all ran about looking amongst the rhododendrons and even under leaves, and Arthur muttered darkly that the pond should be dragged. But I knew he would never go there, because he was frightened of water and wouldn't even go to the edge. We even looked in the hothouses, and I knew he would never go there, because of the Venus flytraps. Marjorie Pierce's lips tightened, and she grew more and more alarmed, and after several discussions with the keepers and descriptions of Alan's size and hair colour, interrupted by me saying he got a stocking dinosaur under his arm, we returned to Warriston Crescent to face my mother. I wonder if you can go to prison for losing a child, said Arthur, as once again we were munching sandwiches in the nursery and trying to hear the discussion issuing from the kitchen loudly between my mother and Marjorie Piers. After half an hour, a policeman appeared with a bewildered Alan. He had been found halfway up Hanover Street and said he was looking for clocks and treacle toffee. Marjorie Piers amazed us by flying into a tantrum and saying that Alan should be flogged for giving her such a fright, and my mother gave her notice to leave there and then. After repacking the plum cardigans and the brogues and sniffing into her handkerchief, Marjorie Pierce, with many further warnings to Amanda and I about never taking sweets from strangers on a train, she disappeared from our lives forever, and I have never eaten a sur plume since.